In 2019, I met my husband, Jonathan, while I was living in Buenos Aires in Argentina. Jonathan is from Buenos Aires, and when I met him, he only spoke Spanish. I'm from the U.S. and speak English, of course, and was decent in Spanish at the time, but still had plenty to learn. I remember getting my first WhatsApp audio message from Jonathan and being so nervous to listen to it because I wasn't sure I would fully understand everything. Over time, my Spanish improves, and I like to say that I'm imperfectly fluent in the language. Of course, Jonathan and I got married, and we have our daughter Luna, and all of our family communications between me, Jonathan, and Luna, and even our dog Mora happens in Spanish. But our love story would not exist if I hadn't taken the time to learn how to communicate in Spanish. Love stories, relationships, partnerships, and connections are not limited to one language. When we only focus on communicating in one language, we limit the amount of people we're able to connect with and the impact and the result that can come from that connection. I like to think of the relationships brands have with the people they serve as love connections. At its heart, that's what belonging is. Obviously, those love connections in a business sense aren't romantic, but the bond and intimacy you create with the people you serve can only root bloom, and blossom when you find a way to speak the same language. When it comes to your brand, what type of love stories could you create with people who have the problem your brand solves, who just so happen to speak a different language? We are finishing up our growth series with this episode that is all about helping you and your brand communicate in a way that wins the hearts, minds, and loyalty of consumers who speak a different language. For this episode, I chatted with my Spanish translation team, Alicia and Andrea. Together, we help brands communicate and create love connections with Spanish-speaking consumers. Spanish is the fourth most common language spoken in the world behind English, Mandarin, and Hindi. And it is the language that has the second largest number of native speakers in the world, only behind Chinese or Mandarin. So if you want to reach more consumers, thinking about how you communicate and serve people who speak Spanish is a smart thing to do. Now, if your goal isn't to reach Spanish speakers, but for people who speak other languages, this episode is still for you because many of the principles we cover are applicable no matter what language you're looking to translate or localize to. We're just using Spanish as the reference point. Specifically, we're covering topics related to what marketers need to know and the decisions they need to make to ensure what they communicate, how they communicate, and the process to getting to communicating with excellence happens smoothly. We'll get to my discussion with Alicia and Andrea of MCI Idiomas after this short break. Okay, I've got another podcast recommendation for you. It's Latinx in Power, hosted by Thaisa Fernandez. It's brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. This podcast features interviews with top-level executives, entrepreneurs, and innovators from Latin America, aiming to demystify the tech industry by providing listeners with insider perspectives and insight from Latin American leaders who have succeeded in their fields. I like listening to this podcast because I like hearing from a broad diversity of voices and hearing from and learning from their experiences. One episode I'm super excited to dive into is the latest one, Lead Generation Journey with Glenville Dixon Jr. Listen to Latinx Empower wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, as we get started talking about communicating with consumers who speak a different language, 
it is important to understand what the terms are so you know exactly what it is you need. So I asked Alicia and Andrea to explain the difference between translation and transcreation. And I'll bet the reality of what a translation actually means might surprise you. Well, translation is taking a text that is written in one language, which is the source language, and writing in in another language, which is the target language, as naturally as possible. This means that the text in the other language needs to be as if it were not a translation, but a text originally written in that language. This is what we call a good translation. And uh, in general, we translate, for example, legal documents or uh, engineering documents or technical documents, in, in which cases you don't need to attract the audience because it is informative. What you are saying is it is informative. But when you are transcreating, you need to appeal to generate an attraction of the audience. You need to attract the audience. This is particularly uh, useful in marketing, for example. Yeah. It's not enough to translate. You have to attract the other person. This is why marketing is not so easy to translate as everybody thinks, because you need some special resources that are not so common in other fields of translation. You don't need these resources to translate an operating manual of any machine. You just have to be accurate with the technical words because the grammar construction is, in general, easy. But in the case of marketing management, well, the issue is a different one. You need the reader to feel involved in the text so that the reader really reaches the end of the text, which is the objective of the client, of course. I personally used to think that translations was something word for word, but that isn't the case at all, especially as we think about communicating beyond just simple words and phrases. It's no. never word for word, no. It's you translate never. ideas, but the purpose is, is not attracting the audience. It's more informative. I know in a lot of instances, let's say you're talking about marketing, a lot of times when people are creating their copy, they agonize over the words for a very long time to make sure they're communicating the meaning. And you want to make sure that you have that same feeling or same idea communicated whenever you have it in different languages, whenever you're localizing it. So having it transcreated is the better way because you're transferring the feeling and the emotion and the intent of the communication. This is what happens with literary books also, that there are very good translations of literary works and there are bad translations. If it is good, for you it's just like if you were reading exactly the same the author wrote, but not just in a question of words or expressions or sentences, but of feelings. Why should people use and continue to use and engage human translators and people who focus on translation and transcreation versus like, hey, everybody's using AI these days and AI AI can do all these things and they can do them fast and people who are using Google Translate to translate everything. What's what's the big difference in the outcome? Google, it's, it's useful, for example, to get a general idea. For example, if you need something quick, you put it in Google, you got the general idea. 
But if you have to give that to a client, I would not recommend the translation because there, there is a, an underlying message that Google may be missing. And uh, artificial intelligence, it's incredible. Yeah. An excellent tool, but all it should always be managed by a translator or an editor yeah. or a corrector. Because in that way, you make you get sure that the translation is correct, that everything it was understood. But this tool is going to be yeah. very useful in the near future. Yeah, very, very. So I was talking to Jonathan recently, and since we live in the U.S. now, I was curious about how he navigates going to different websites, since Jonathan communicates in Spanish almost exclusively. So he started showing me what he does, and he went to a website And the website didn't have the option to click over to a Spanish version of the site that the brand had translated. So up popped a button automatically from Google, like this was on Chrome, asking him if he wanted to translate the site using Google Translate. He said yes, as he's often had to do, and the site was translated. I watched this whole thing happen in horror because I was thinking about it from a marketer's point of view. And as mentioned earlier, so often marketers and copywriters agonize over the copy and language and messaging to get it just right. And they probably have no idea that consumers who come to their website end up reading their messaging via a Google translation because a brand hasn't taken the time in advance to translate or transcreate those messages. This is terrible because sometimes companies do not understand that the web page is their window to the world. It's the way the world sees the company, perceives the company, values the company. And if it is not well translated, well, I don't think the message will be really effective. Sometimes, because all of us have used Google Translate at one time or another, and we pop in a phrase and it comes right back to us, that may have skewed our thinking on how quickly a translation can come back. But good translations and transcreations take time. So we need to give our teams the time needed to do it. Sometimes they come and say, I need a translation of a web page, but I need it in 48 hours. What? 48 hours for the translation of a web page? That's impossible. We will never be able to reproduce in an attractive way a web page in the other language that will be read by an audience that does not speak the original language in which it was written. Well, they do not understand it. For the moment, it's almost a lost battle. I was super curious to learn from Alicia and Andrea's point of view, what makes a good translation and what doesn't. Here's their point of view. To begin with, uh, if it is natural, uh, if you read it and you feel involved, you understand everything, also the underlying message that is a good translation. If structures are correct, if the structures used are the structures that we use in Spanish or in English. And in the order they are used, because they are not used in the same order. For instance, in English you have adjective and noun. Yeah. And in Spanish we have noun and adjective. adjective. Yeah, in general, if people put it the other way around... It sounds awkward in Spanish. It's about translation. Uh, the same happens with time and place adverbs. You have specific places in English and it is much more flexible in Spanish. So you can make a combination. But if you put it exactly as they appear in English, 
it does not sound the same place. It does not sound natural in Spanish. Okay, so I'm curious. There are so many different dialects, I guess you would say, in Spanish. Whenever I was learning Spanish, I used Rosetta Stone, and I was learning with Latin American Spanish on a daily basis. I use Argentine Spanish, which is there are some words and phrases that are very different from what I have been learning. Um, there's Spanish from Spain. There's Spanish from Mexico. Everybody uses sort of different words and phrases. So whenever you're translating, what do you use <laughs> to make sure that people Well, 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 not universal, but some people call call it neutral Spanish, which is not, I mean, it's, it's a sort of vague expression. Colombian, specifically. Yeah. In general, the, the neutral is it's Spanish. Colombian. It's the, I, I don't know why, but it is the Colombian. Because it used, that dialect used many words of different countries. For example... In Argentina, you know, we have vos, the, the pronoun vos. In the rest of America, we, uh, they use tu. Yeah. But in Colombia, they use tu and vos, for example. So they match a lot of, uh, of words from different places. So in general, we tend to translate to that language. Because all the other countries in Latin America, or the readers of those countries, will usually understand the word, even though it is not exactly the same word they use in their own countries. For example, just to give you an example, you have the gas cylinders, yes? Yes. Yeah, for the provision of the supply of gas. Well, uh, the neutral word in Latin America would be bombona. If you write bombona, that's the neutral word for gas cylinders. But in Argentina, we call them garrafas. So we would never use garrafa because that is a specific of Argentina. We would use bombona. That's a way of addressing the language in a neutral way and trying to get all the Latin American audiences. Spain is a different issue. We're going to get into some hot but very important topics associated with localizing your messages after this short break. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. Like trying to remember the name of that guy you just met at a networking event. Was it Ron or could it be Don or John or Sean? Yeah, that kind of impossible. HubSpot's all new service hub can help. Well, with the service solution part, at least. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. With an AI-powered help desk and an AI chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. In a full 360 view of every customer, so your go-to-market team can keep a pulse on accounts before trying to upsell or cross-sell. Also, you can scale support and drive retention and revenue. And you know what that means. Better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit HubSpot.com service to do more for your customers today. 
In many Romance languages, including Spanish, French, Portuguese, and Italian, nouns are gendered, either masculine or feminine. So if you're talking about a table in Spanish, mesa, it is feminine, for example, while a coat or abrigo is masculine. Professions are also masculine and feminine. A teacher could be maestra or maestro, depending on the gender of the person. And the way the languages work, if you're using the plural form of a group that includes both masculine and feminine, the masculine form is used. So if you're referring to all teachers, you would say maestros. Some proponents of gender neutrality in these languages have offered up alternative options. And in the case of Spanish, it would eliminate, for instance, defaulting to the masculine version of a word when referring to a group. So instead of saying Latinos when referring to people of Latin American descent, you would say Latine with an E. This is highly controversial, highly controversial, with people who are against it, arguing that people are changing the entire language for the purpose of being gender inclusive. In France, the government even weighed in on gender neutral language, in effect banning its use in schools and in government documents. As a brand, when communicating one of these languages that use gender when referring to nouns, you'll have to take a stand on whether or not you'll use gender-neutral language. As you have said, this is a very controversial issue, which is related with many things, including generational gaps, because not everybody agrees. Well, we as translators, we, the two of us, are in favor of gender-neutral language in general. What happens is that we perceive that maybe because of the English language has special characteristics. I mean, you, you have no gender forms in articles, in nouns, in adjectives. In professions. It, it has been easier for you to incorporate gender language or gender neutral language in English. But Spanish is completely different because we have gender forms everywhere using a sort of repetition, for example, saying, well, I want to be gender neutral, so I will say, los empleados y las empleadas. Well, that is awkward, is heavy. It excludes, because, I mean, there are genders which are not included. Therefore, it, <laughs> so this is not a form we would, um, we would use. The question of using the E at the end of the word is quite controversial, is not widespread. It would be, in fact, the most, um, is the easiest way for a gender neutral language, no doubt. And it doesn't exclude anyone, but it is not widespread. There are many people who reject the use of this language. So you have to be very careful. We only use the E when the clients ask gender-neutral language with the E. Otherwise, we try to... We use words that are gender-neutral. Yeah, or expressions. Synonyms. Spanish have a lot of words. So the idea is to look for that word that applies. For instance, you can say alumnos or alumnas showing a gender, a gender. But if you say estudiantes, 
you are not showing any gender. And if you try to avoid the article, because the article will say los estudiantes, so again you have gender. So you have to avoid or find a way to avoid the use of the article. But sometimes, for example, you in English have the word nurses. If you, if you try to translate that specifically into Spanish, you have enfermeros and enfermeras. So you are not being gender neutral. So we try to find an expression that would represent the same without using gender. And we would say, for example, personal de enfermería, meaning nurse stuff. In that case, you include everybody. <laughs> That's a way of managing gender-neutral language. It is not easy. It is not always possible. But in 90% of the cases, if you make the effort, you find the expression. You, you have to look for lots of options. For example, in a letter, dear, here would be estimado, estimado or estimada. estimada. And now we are using, for example, hola. Yes. Yes, with exclamation marks. So in that way, we are including everybody. Yes. Yeah. And it is not so different in meaning because, in fact, it's a way of addressing the other. Maybe estimado or hola, it is just the same. You are not changing the meaning. Of course, it requires more effort. Of course, yes, no doubt. And there are cases, and there are cases for example, the legal translation. The legal translation is a complete exception for this because it's impossible for the moment to include gender-neutral language is absolutely impossible because it may give rise to, a not a mistake, but a misunderstanding. And in a legal text, this is basically, it must be clear. There can be no doubt about the word. So it's impossible for the moment, at least into Spanish, to include uh, gender-neutral language. In the curriculum I use for my programs, Inclusive Brand Academy and the Belonging Accelerator, I'll link both of those in the show notes, I talk about establishing marketing policies. Think of them as guiding principles and decisions you'll make that will inform how your brand shows up and engages with the people you serve. One of the policies you'll need to establish is about inclusive language and what your stance on that is. You'll need to decide what inclusive language means and looks like for you and your brand. And that applies to both English and any other language your brand communicates in. That includes your stance on gender-neutral language. As Alicia and Andrea mentioned, they use the gender-neutral E as in Latine whenever a client requests them to do so. The client in those instances is able to do so because they've established that gender-neutral language is important to them And that is how they want to address it in their communications. I covered inclusive language more in detail in episode 15 of the podcast, Getting Started with Inclusive Language. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes. Alicia and Andrea also mentioned that legal documents are a special consideration where at the moment, gender neutral language in Spanish can't be applied. Now, earlier this year, Jonathan was buying a phone online And as he was looking over all the details, he got the terms and conditions of the purchase. Because the site wasn't translated by the brand, he clicked translate when the Google Translate option popped up for the website and ended up reading the terms and conditions of the purchase for the phone in Spanish that had been translated by Google Translate. He told me it was not good. 
at all. And it was quite difficult to understand, which is a total shame because it's a really important document. Don't let these communication breakdowns, especially with important content, information, and materials happen in your brand. Okay, let's look into other decisions and marketing policies you'll have to establish as you're thinking about how your brand communicates. Do you speak with a formal or informal, more friendly tone? In Spanish, this is important because there is the tú and usted form of communicating and addressing people, which of course you'll have to decide which is right for you and how you communicate with the people you serve. But something that is happening in the last, or that have been happening in the last couple of years is the, the word you, the pronoun you in English, in Spanish has two varieties. Usted, like yeah. uh, showing respect. Formal. More formal. And two, that is for younger people. So More intimate. More intimate. So now the problem is, how do we translate you? Some companies prefer the usted because it involves almost everybody. And older people feel comfortable. And other, other companies prefer using tú. But in those cases, older people in general, do not feel comfortable. They feel like outside. So there is a, a, an age gap here yeah, that we have to solve in, in the near future. I, I can <laughs> speak on behalf of old people. So I can say that it's not my personal case, but uh, there are many people who consider that maybe not using usted is a sort of lack of respect, which in fact is not. But this is the way they were brought. So it's terrible because it's something very much incorporated. And so they feel bad when they read something and people treat them saying tú instead of usted. One of the things that pops up, I remember when we were working on a project together, we had a client who would often send things for translation but they often use phrases that are very English phrases that don't necessarily translate well, right? How do you account for that? And what would your advice be to business leaders and marketers who want to have that meaning, but you know they know that they're going to be having stuff translated? How would you advise them about those phrases, those types of phrases? Well, There are some cases in which it's quite difficult to find an exact combination of words to represent exactly what the English language, for example, says. We, we have an example we always remember. Imagine that uh, we're in Easter and a client is offering benefits or special benefits uh, or their company is offering benefits to their clients. And so, as it is Easter, they say, extra benefit. That is E-G-G-S-T-R-A. That's brilliant, really. It's a wonderful, wonderful finding in the English language. That's brilliant, funny, attractive. But you have to translate it into Spanish. And do you see the words do not combine in the same way? Yes. In the same way, you cannot say that. So if you can't, as this is the case, well, you have to try to find an equally attractive expression in the other language, 
even if you have to sacrifice the extra, you'll see in the English language that says, wow, that's wonderful. Why can't we do the same in, the, in Spanish? Yes, but sometimes you can't. But you can always find attractive things in the other language. Yeah. I'm thinking that it might be helpful for copywriters like to basically have two versions. Have the version that you want to use for extra benefits um, for English, but also write, what would you say? If you couldn't use that cutesy phrase, what would you say otherwise? So that whenever it comes time to, you know, to do the translation, you're able to have something that you know that you are saying something that communicates what you want. And it's not all this kind of acrobatics to figure out. I, re I remember that we put something like um, in Spanish, in English, something like the, the bunny was uh, jumping with extra benefits, something like this, funnier. Right. Yeah. Because we needed to keep that, that joke, yeah. but we have to change it. Right. That's a good example. That's a good example. Yeah. Why is it important to have a degree of customer intimacy whenever it comes to translating the material? I'm guessing that a lot of times people just kind of send you stuff and like, hey, can you translate this without necessarily giving you an understanding of who the reader is? And how, how, how does that change the way you approach your work? That issue is critical, it's essential. It's key. Yeah, you have to know the addressee of your text. That means that there must be a customer translator relationship. It's not just please translate this, no. You need that relationship so that the client can tell you, well, this material will be addressed to these people. And so if you know your addressee, you will know many things. And if he says, for example, that the addressee of that material is a Spanish-speaking community uh, with a poor level of Spanish, then you know that you have to use simple words, simple constructions, so that the message that is the most important part, of course, is understood by everybody, because this is the objective. The objective is the message, not the specific word. Yeah. And so it's very, it's very important that there is a good relationship between client and translator, and there is trust. Alicia and Andrea added that other things that are helpful for your translation and transcreation team to know in advance, besides the level of Spanish of the end user, include the countries and markets you'll be using the materials and messages in. Having a degree of customer intimacy is essential for everyone on your team. That's why it's important to also think of those who are translating and transcreating your content as a part of your team, as they need to have a customer intimacy for the people you're serving as well. Sometimes that intimacy looks like your translation team engaging and interacting from time to time with your end user to better understand how they communicate. Um, the register. Once, for example, we were translating a, a crane's manual, yeah. an operation, and Perhaps for one word, there are lots of Spanish words. For example, I don't know, a pin and the translation are... I, right. You have 10, ten, yes. 10 possible translations for that. So uh, this was for, uh, in Argentina, um, Vaca Muerta, um, 
where they are extracting uh, gas. Yeah. So we asked the client to talk to the person that was going to operate the machine. So we get in con- we got in contact with that person. Yeah. We have zooms and a lot of things. And we managed to make a good team. So we translated the correct words. We offered the options and he said, uh, because it was a man, please use that word, that word. So everybody was happy at the end because the final product was uh, appropriate. We, we use the words that the employees working for that contractor would understand. Teamwork is a common theme for communicating well in other languages. That means working as a team with your translators, as well as having your translators working as a team. In general, it's better when uh, people work in, in a team, forming yeah. a good team. For example, we work. Uh, I work with Alicia, when, with Viviana, with Nancy. We are four or five, and many heads think better. And many have eyes and many heads. Better ideas. We, we have, I mean, all of us, the four or five of us, can play different roles. We can all translate, edit, review, proofread. So if you have a project, then at least three of us have a look at the translation. Uh, the result is always better. Uh, always. We yeah. are fans of teamwork. And one other thing about working in teams is embracing dialogue and questions. This will help you get a better end product. And perhaps welcome doubting. If, if we doubt, if when a translator have doubt, it's it's a good symptom because it means that that's part that we want to to get involved in the text. Yeah. If we don't have doubt, oh, that's like an alarm because in general yeah. we have doubts yeah. about the the meaning, the purpose, and we, whatsoever. And we, <laughs> and we have found that um, there are especially agencies that when they contract translators who find that consulting the client about a doubt the translator has is a symptom of weakness. And we think just the opposite, that consulting the client is telling the client, well, we want to do the best possible work for you. And we don't understand what this word or this expression means in this sentence. But sometimes we have found barriers in the agencies, for example, say, no, well, we cannot contact the client. You have to find a solution. There may be many solutions. <laughs> of course, there aren't many solutions. Well, and in something that is so, um, the whole point is communicating and communicating yeah. well. Yeah. And that and clarity, right? Like if the clarity is essential and that is the primary objective, then you have to have clarity in the process, right? So, yeah. <laughs> we cannot translate what we don't understand. It is as clear as that. Yes. We need to understand what we are uh, translating. Because I guess in a lot of instances, your work isn't being checked, right? And not to say that your work needs to be checked, but it's just people don't have the skill or ability to look over and know they're only able to get it from once it's in the market, right? So um, and yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you want to make sure that you can sort of avoid any challenges in, in advance. I, I think it, it, it would be great that all companies or marketers could understand that, I mean, that translation is a sort of bridge 
that communicates people on the on one side with people on the other side, and they happen to speak different languages. Mm-hmm. And so, if they need uh, to, to to reach the other side, they have to find a good message well written in the other language, because this is the only way in which the message will be effective. Yeah. Otherwise. I mean, a poor translation may thwart the best of projects. Communicating in other languages is the gateway or bridge, as the team mentioned, to enabling you to connect and serve a broader audience and customer base. It is a super smart growth strategy that enables you to grow while also creating a transformation in the lives of more people with what you offer. If you need more help in this area, specifically as it relates to translation and transcreation, do let me know. Me and the team would love to help you communicate with Spanish speakers, which also includes planning out the customer experience you deliver for them. That's it for this episode and for this growth series. If you like the show, I'd love it if you'd share it with a friend, colleague, or your network. And if you share it on social media, please do tag me as I'd love to join the conversation. If you haven't yet listened to the other episodes in the growth series, go back and have a listen. I'll drop links to them in the show notes so you can access them easily. Also, if you are enjoying the show, please do leave a rating and review for it in your podcast player of choice. It really does go a long way toward helping more people discover the show. Have you joined the inclusion and marketing newsletter yet? If not, what are you even doing? Each week, I send news, tips, stories, and other good stuff to help you grow by including more people. Go to inclusionandmarketing.com newsletter to get signed up. I'll also drop a link to it in the show notes for you. Until next time, remember, everyone deserves to have a place where they belong. Let's use our individual and collective power to ensure more people feel like they do. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you soon.